Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. We finished up last time talking about type 2 diabetes after about four or five different podcasts. And today we're going to switch gears and talk about diabetes mellitus type 1. So type 1 was formerly known as juvenile onset diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes. Type 1 accounts for approximately 5 to 10% of all people with diabetes. Type 1 diabetes generally affects people under 40 years of age, although it can occur at any age. It is a chronic condition, which the pancreas produces little or no insulin. Insulin, again, is a hormone needed to allow sugar, also known as glucose, to enter cells to produce energy. Different factors, including genetics and some viruses, may contribute to type 1 diabetes, majority of cases of type 1 diabetes are related to an autoimmune disorder in which the body develops antibodies against insulin and or the pancreatic beta cells that produce insulin. This eventually results in not enough insulin for a person to survive. In type 1 diabetes, the islet cell autoimmune bodies responsible for beta cell destruction are present for months or even years before the onset of symptoms. Once the pancreas can no longer produce sufficient amount of insulin to maintain normal glucose levels, this onset of symptoms is usually rapid, and patients are often initially seen with impending or actual ketoacidosis. The patient usually has a history of recent or sudden weight loss, and the classic symptoms of polydipsia, polyuria, and polyphagia are present, which to review those mean excessive thirst, polydipsia, frequent urination, referred to as polyuria, and excessive hunger, also known as polyphagia. The individual with type 1 diabetes will require insulin from an outside source, referred to as exogenous insulin, to sustain life. Without insulin, the patient will go on to develop diabetic ketoacidosis, known as DKA, which is a life-threatening condition resulting in metabolic acidosis. Newly diagnosed patients with type 1 diabetes may experience what's called the honeymoon period or remission for 3 to 12 months after treatment is initiated. What this means is that patients require little amounts of insulin because beta cell insulin production remains just at the level to be considered sufficient for healthy blood glucose levels. But eventually, the beta cells will continue to be destroyed and blood glucose levels will increase, requiring more and more insulin on a permanent basis. Idiopathic diabetes is another form of type 1 diabetes that is strongly inherited and not related to autoimmunity. This type of diabetes only occurs in a small number of people and is most often seen in Hispanic, African, or Asian ancestry. Latent autoimmune diabetes 
in adults is a slow progressing autoimmune form of type 1 diabetes, and it occurs in adults and can often be mistaken for type 2 diabetes. Diagnosing type 1 diabetes is similar to that of type 2 diabetes, which I review in previous podcasts. These diagnostic strategies include hemoglobin A1C testing, random blood glucose sugar tests, and fasting blood glucose levels. Treatment for type 1 diabetes includes taking insulin, carbohydrate, fat, and protein counting, frequent blood glucose monitoring, eating healthy foods, exercising regularly, and maintaining a healthy weight, which most of those topics I've touched on also in previous podcasts. Generally, the goal is to keep your daytime blood sugar levels before meals between 80 to 130 milligrams per deciliter and your after meal numbers no higher than 180 milligrams per deciliter two hours after eating, which is called your postprandial glucose level. Previously, I talked a lot about different types of insulin, such as fast-acting, short-acting, intermediate-acting, and long-acting insulin. Another type of treatment with insulin includes an insulin pump. An insulin pump delivers continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion through a small device that is worn on your belt or in your pocket or under clothing. Insulin pumps use rapid-acting insulin, which is loaded into a reservoir or a cartridge and connected via a plastic tubing and catheter, which is inserted into the subcutaneous tissue of your abdomen. There are also a variety of wireless pumps. Insulin pumps are programmed to dispense specific amounts of rapid-acting insulin automatically. The steady dose of insulin is known as your basal rate, and it replaces whatever long-acting insulin the patient was previously using. You can also utilize the insulin pump for mealtime boluses. When you eat, you program the pump with the amount of carbohydrates you are eating and your current blood sugar, and it will give you a calculated bolus dose or insulin to cover your meal and to correct your blood sugar. There has also been a lot of research that has shown insulin pumps to be more effective at controlling blood sugar levels than injections. Another treatment option includes an artificial pancreas, which is used for patients with type 1 diabetes who are greater than age of 14. This is a closed-loop insulin delivery system, and basically the device is implanted and then continuously checks the blood glucose levels every 5 minutes and links to an insulin pump that automatically delivers the correct amount of insulin when the monitor indicates that it's needed. Another treatment option for patients with type 1 diabetes is a pancreatic transplant where a donor pancreas is surgically implanted. It is usually done for patients who have end-stage renal disease and have had or plan to have a kidney transplant. Kidney and pancreas transplants are often performed together. If renal failure is not present, it is recommended that pancreas transplantation only be considered for those patients who exhibit the following three criteria. One, history of frequent, acute, and severe metabolic complications That would include hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, and ketoacidosis. Two, clinical and emotional problems with the use of exogenous insulin therapy. And three, consistent failure of insulin-based management to prevent acute complications. Over the next few weeks, I will be discussing more in depth of acute complications of diabetes mellitus. The acute complications arise from the events associated with either hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia. Hyperglycemia refers to when there is not enough insulin working and blood glucose levels are significantly elevated. On the other hand, hypoglycemia occurs when there is too much insulin and blood sugar levels are extremely low. 
Thank you all for listening again today. And over the next couple of weeks, I have some exciting podcasts coming up. Hopefully some guests will be on talking more about type 1 diabetes, which is very exciting. And as always, you can find me at Instagram handle Let's Review RN. And please, if you have time, a review would be much appreciated. I love hearing everyone's feedback. Until next week. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.